This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Have you got adult children living at home? Have you amassed a fortune and you're going to leave it to your children? Leave it to me. Never mind them. Good evening. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show, a show all about health. It's been said, your health is your wealth. The benefits of great health cannot be overstated. Great health leads to a longer, happier life and even better relationships, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, 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 even sexual. Uncovering what lies beneath the covers. Yes, we do that here on the Sunday Night Health Show. I have a passion for up-to-date health information to guide you so that the life you lead is the best it can be. Please do put the kitties to bed. Listener discretion is advised. We are slipping beneath the sheets On this program, my aim is to provide you with evidence-based information so that you can live the best life possible and that you also know that there are options for treatment for whatever ails you. We're also trying to to dispel some myths and uh, make some of these topics less taboo. Please do, however, consult with your medical doctor or healthcare provider uh, about anything you might hear on the program. Tonight, we have lots to talk about on the program. We're going to talk about spoiled children, entitled children, <laughs> children who uh, don't deserve uh, maybe your uh, great fortune that you have amassed. Don't leave it to them. Leave it to me. I'm a grateful sort. <laughs> that would be nice. I did hear about, but it can't happen because nurses can't accept that money. Um, but anyway, we've got lots to talk about on the program tonight. I'm going to be talking a lot about the things that I see in my clinical practice that might ail you as well that are taboo subjects that you might think, oh, there's no help for me, like leakage of urine. A lot of people think there's nothing that can be done. They see all those commercials on TV about products and pads, and really, is that sexy? I will send you to lingerie shops, okay? That is sexy. So hopefully you'll stay with me. And uh, I'm going to be talking to Paul Mendes, a lawyer. Uh, He's going to weigh in on the case of the 30-year-old fellow who, uh, whose parents had to go to the Supreme Court of New York to actually uh, e- eject him <laughs> from their home. Not evict him. They had to eject him. Um, we're also going to be talking about, yes, what to do with uh, the money that you've amassed and, and what's a fair way uh, to deal with um, your enterprise that you have built up. Sharon Duga joins me a little bit later on in the program. Uh, to advise you on the best way to go about that. So we've got lots of subjects coming up. Things falling down, I can help you. Um, Things not staying up, I can help you. So we're going to be talking about all of that because I see so much of that in my clinical practice. And you know I like to sing. I can't sing, but I like to sing. And, and, you know, I was raised with a father who uh, he would would sing answers to you. (laughs) If you asked him a question, he would sing an answer back. And uh, so I think that's where it comes from is that I just like will belt out, uh, you know, a statement or something. You know, it it reveals itself in different ways as the generations carry on. Um, So all I can think of for this subject that I want to talk to you about right now, because it can happen at different times in um, a person's life and can be really annoying is, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Okay, so there you go. That's a little lead into the subject that I want to talk to you about right now. And uh, I want to talk to you about Schrogren's Schrogren's syndrome. Say that three times fast. Um, Many people experience, many people experience dry eyes in their lifetime. And this is uh, also something that can happen during the menopause and the perimenopausal time because 
it's related to hormones. And I see a lot of patients with hormonal issues in my clinical practice, and they don't realize, because nobody ever mentions the E word, estrogen, uh, which is the hormone regulator of every organ in your body. So dry eyes can really bother people. Uh, it, can, it can affect your vision. And the other reason I wanted to bring up a little vision um, subject on the show was because sometimes we look at people before we decide to live the rest of our lives with them. We look at them through rose-colored glasses, or we don't see <laughs> clearly. We don't see exactly what uh, we um, should be seeing, perhaps, or we, and then we see it later, and then we're like, there were red flags. Why didn't I see that before? So having a little fun with, with this. But this is a, a serious um, disorder of your immune system, Sjogren's syndrome. And it's identified by two most common symptoms, dry eyes and dry mouth. Imagine if I had a dry mouth. I mean, I couldn't talk. Anyway, that's like my living. Uh, but the condition often accompanies other immune system disorders, such as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. In Sjogren's syndrome, S-J-O-G-R-E-N-S syndrome, apostrophe S, the mucous membranes and moisture-secreting glands of your eyes and mouth are usually affected first, and that results in decreased tears and saliva. That's another thing. I'm a crier. Like, I would just be devastated with this particular, and it, it's a very bothersome syndrome. You can develop Sjogren syndrome at any age, but most people are over the age of 40 at the time. And this condition is far more common in women. And the treatment focuses on relieving the symptoms. So that's important to realize as well. So the two main symptoms, as I mentioned, dry eyes, your eyes might burn, itch or feel gritty as if there's sand in them, or dry mouth. And you might feel, your mouth might feel like it's full of cotton, making it difficult to swallow or speak. Some people with Sjogren's syndrome also have one or more of the following. They might, you might have joint pain, swelling and stiffness, swollen salivary glands, particularly the set behind your jaw and in front of your ears, skin rashes or dry skin, vaginal dryness, persistent dry cough, and prolonged fatigue. This is an autoimmune disorder. And you know, oftentimes I say to people with autoimmune disorders, read the book When the Body Says No by Gabor Maté. You know, if we are people pleasers and, and getting depleted, giving so much to other people and also not finding our voice, it can have an impact. There's a theory Dr. Gap, Gap, Gabor Mate puts forth that it can have an impact on your immune system and you can become less than healthy. You're in this particular autoimmune disorder or, or in autoimmune disorders, your immune system mistakenly attacks your body's own cells and tissues. And we don't know why. Some people develop Sjogren's syndrome. Certain genes put people at a higher risk, but it appears that the triggering mechanism such can be an infection with a particular strain of a virus or a bacteria is also necessary. And so in Sjogren's syndrome, your immune system first targets the glands that make tears and saliva, but can also damage other parts of your body like your kidneys, liver, lungs, skin, nerves, thyroid, and joints. So the risk factors are uh, age, over the age of 40, sex, more women than men are likely to have it, rheumatic disease. So it's common for people who have Sjogren's syndrome to also have rheumatic disease. And some of the complications, because of the dry mouth, dental uh, issues. So cavities, yeast infections, you're more likely to develop an oral thrush, a yeast infection in the mouth, and vision problems. Dry eyes can lead to light sensitivity, blurred vision, and corneal damage. And the less comp common complications may occur to your lymph nodes and your nerves and that kind of a thing. 
So you might have to have some blood tests done, some eye tests done, some imaging done, maybe even a biopsy to detect the presence of clusters of inflammatory cells, which can indicate Sjogren's syndrome. So the treatment for Sjogren's syndrome depends on the parts of the body effective. Many people manage the dry eye and dry mouth by using over-the-counter eye drops and sipping water more frequently or spraying their mouths with water. Or there's also eucalyptus tabs, which will help with the dryness as well. You may need a prescription medication or there are even surgeries. But there are some medications that can decrease the eye inflammation. There are medications that can increase the production of saliva for you and also address the specific complications that you have. So if you develop arthritis symptoms, you might benefit from NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory meds or other arthritis medications. So you want to also treat system-wide symptoms. Uh, Plaquenil is a drug designed to treat malaria. It's often helpful in treating Sjogren's syndrome. And drugs that suppress the immune system, such as Trexol or methotrexate, might also be prescribed. Surgery might be an option as well. So very interesting syndrome. But if you do have dry eyes and dry mouth, you know, it's worthwhile to go and visit your doctor. I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you as I do every Sunday evening. Uh, You know, there's lots about raising children today, uh, especially these millennials. Sometimes we feel we should be their friends and not their parents, or sometimes a lot of these kids are pretty entitled. Uh, But uh, there's a story out of the U.S., out of the state of New York, where there's a 30-year-old boy, shall we say, (laughs) hasn't quite become a man, who a U.S. judge ordered to move out of his parents' house. And I have Paul Mendes on of Lesperance Mendes Law Firm out of Vancouver on the line. We're going to talk about the legalities surrounding this, because this is a pretty significant case where parents actually have to go to the Supreme Court of New York to get their child to launch. Hello, Paul. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am wonderful, thank you. That's great. Okay, so we look at this case with interest. Uh, These days, you know, a lot of times it's difficult for young people to get jobs after they've graduated from university, or it's difficult for them to gather the money perhaps for a down payment or even to find a rental if they have a dog or something. And in Western society, we typically expect our children to launch or leave the nest at about anywhere from 18 and and up. And so here's this 30-year-old man who refuses to leave his parents' house, and his, and his parents have taken significant and serious steps to, to get him out. So from a legal perspective, what is, I'm just interested in your opinion on this case. Well, it's a very interesting case. Uh, you know, I, I haven't come across something like this in Canadian courts before, but I wouldn't be surprised if some parents have uh, thought about it. Uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with things like the age of majority and age of consent. Uh, in Canada, a person is actually considered their own person and, and essentially emancipated from their parents. Uh, in most jurisdictions, I think it's 16 years of age. Uh, at that time, a child could move out, say, at 16, 17, uh, 18, and, of course, that wouldn't be considered a uh, runaway. And here we have the opposite extreme of that, which is a young man who, um, by all accounts, based on the uh, evidence, was basically a ne'er-do-well with not only uh, no skills or life ambition, but even, it seems, a basic inability to take care of himself and his parents 
uh, were giving him some tough love because even though they were applying to the court to evict him, you'll see in the evidence that's reported in the media that uh, they sent him some instructions on how he might find himself an apartment and how he might find himself a job or raise a little bit of money by perhaps selling some of his personal uh, possessions because the apartment that he was likely to move into had uh, no storage in it. So very interesting case because uh, you're quite right. In, in North America now, especially in the major urban centers, it's very hard for young people to move out. Job prospects are not perhaps what they used to be 20 or 30 years ago when people typically moved out as soon as, the, as fast as they could after finishing high school. Um, you know, these parents, I guess, had had uh, enough of this guy who also, through the evidence, appears not to even have ever assisted his parents with uh, contributing to the expenses or chores around, around the house. Exactly. I mean, he really was someone that seemed to was trying to take advantage of his parents' kindness over the past you know, 10, 15 years after he'd uh, finished high school. Exactly. And, you know, is that tough love a little... Uh, you know, a little too little and a little too late, or have they been trying for a long time? But there's also some red flags here. Um, this gentleman doesn't work. He he was also asked, or it was suggested by his parents, that he sell his weapons, which is of concerning yeah. in addition to his personal items. He also sat emotionless in court. And so you have to wonder, is this a mental illness case? Is there... Uh, that's a very, very well, interesting observation, because... I was wondering, there's obviously some backstory here. I did, I did notice the reference to him uh, having to take his weapons out of the house. I mean, keep in mind that in the United States, it's not uncommon for people to have weapons. Uh, and so we shouldn't read too much into that. But despite the humorous tone of the, of the uh, media reports on the case, I was wondering what is going on in the background here that would not only uh, force these parents to apply to the Supreme Court for an order, not to evict their son, that's not the word that was used, it was called an ejectment, which actually (laughs) sounds worse than an eviction. It sounds like being thrown out of your house by a catapult or a cannon. That's Um, exactly what I imagined, absolutely. (laughs) And and so I thought, what is going on in in the background here? It wasn't really clear from the media reports. There's some video... Uh, I saw some video of him making fairly articulate submissions uh, in his defense, uh, or I guess in opposition to the application. So he seemed like a smart person, but there was definitely something up there. And again, when you look at the letters that his parents had written him, I mean, the excerpts that I saw or read uh, about seemed like they did genuinely care about him and that it wasn't a sense of fear that was motivating them as much as it was they wanted him out so that he could get on with his life because he basically was sponging off of his parents for quite a while. But, you know, there could be something else to the story for sure. Yeah, I'm curious if we're not missing mental illness here. Uh, He had previously called his parents' lawsuit retaliatory and had asked, and you know, had requested that the court get rid of the request, but um, that that didn't happen. You know, I I wonder if you know down the road we're going to see uh, some other behaviors. I hope not, because some of the conversation in the U.S. around all of the shootings in schools, uh, in the schools that that they've had, and more children have died um, in schools this year than any other school in the U.S. 
than any other year in the U.S. And it's but often it's tied to mental illness, and I think that is yeah. what what we yeah. need to start talking about. Uh, that it's not you know necessarily gun owners particularly, but but if your thirty year old son were at home and he had weapons and he didn't work and he didn't contribute, I, I really. I thought that was a red flag as well that, you know, they actually expected him to do dishes and, and contribute. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think there were other bigger signs there. You know, he's unemployed and, uh, and, and almost obsessive in, in this fight and no embarrassment whatsoever. So no humility, yeah. no embarrassment. You know, I was really struck by his emotionless behavior and, and his focus on this. Right. Well, you know, going back to sort of the mental health issue, I mean, when you think about it, uh, if you are going to have this kind of conflict with a family member, uh, one of the most rational and sane ways to do it would actually be through the courts rather than, you know, physically uh, throwing someone out of the house or getting into some kind of a, a physical uh, altercation. Um, a very interesting case. I mean, I don't know specifically what application it has uh, in Canada, like I say, I haven't heard of these cases, and certainly as a parent of teenagers, I've been threatened many times with my children saying, the first chance I get, I'm out of here, you're ruining my life. <laughs> or I'm divorcing you. Children have <laughs> yeah. divorced their parents, though, in the past. It was also yeah, interesting that this mother offered to give $1,100 uh, to for her yeah. son to move out, but he did, still didn't budge. It's an odd number. The whole case is odd. Paul Mendes. It is an odd number, isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a strange number. There's a lot of little subtle, strange things about this case. But I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this and other cases as you have in the past. Uh, so thanks You're so much. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for your insight on this, Paul. That's Paul Mendes of Les Brent's Mendes Law Firm in Vancouver. And I am Maureen McGrath. And you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Okay, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, a quarter of my son's son. Yeah, okay, we're we're all good. Okay, so uh, now I stop that recording, right, Jeff? And start a new one? You, all right, you'll know. Okay, perfect. Okay, Sharon, we're going to start the, it's about 10 minutes, okay, the yeah, interview. Perfect. And uh, And we'll start now. Okay, here we go. Welcome back to this Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you, as I do every Sunday night. It's always my pleasure to be here with you. So you've amassed quite a fortune, or you've been working for a number of years, and all of a sudden you are worth millions. Who do you leave it to? Well, I have one suggestion. You could leave it to me. I am a grateful sort, because maybe your children aren't that grateful. Maybe you've spoiled them so much that they don't deserve it. Maybe you have no idea what to do with the funds that you have amassed. Maybe you're sitting pretty on a large net worth, and you know what? What is going to be your legacy, and how do you deal with this? Many people are stressed by this, but... You needn't be stressed any longer. You need to see Sharon Duguid. She is a family enterprise advisor, and she's on the line with me. Hello, Sharon. Hey, Maureen. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? Doing great today. Thank you. Okay, so I don't fit any of the descriptions that I just said, so I've not amassed this massive fortune. I have nothing to worry about here, okay? <laughs> In fact, I'm gonna, probably going to owe money after I go. <laughs> a large well, amount. For that too, we can help you avoid that if you want to. So okay, fantastic. That means I have to focus on something other than sex, finances, which is the number one issue for people in relationships. So you actually advise people of of a certain 
um, level of income or a certain wealth that they perhaps have amassed over the time period where they have built a business or they have been working or they have been saving all of their money, but um, they may have a family business. Uh, and so tell me about um, you know what, what this looks like and why would it be important to have a family enterprise advisor in your life? Well, you nailed it. You know, a lot of people understand a, the amount of wealth they've amassed or uh, the impact of what wealth on the next generation might mean if they were to get hit by the proverbial beer truck. A lot of people haven't given thought to legacy or how to give back to the community. And, um, and what I know to be true is that without clear communication up front, um, when the will is being read, if there hasn't been good communication, the number of assumptions, the the number of positions, the things that get um, dragged up in families around wealth and money when somebody's passed on is is pretty horrific. Those bad stories exist for a reason because many of them are true. So my job is to help front load that so that uh, you know the wealth is distributed in the way people intended and there's clear communication and there isn't a lot of ambiguity and not a lot of room for assumption and therefore not a lot of room for lawyers to come in and uh, you know fight the will. Well, you know, it's interesting because people can get hurt by this. I had a uh, woman in my clinical practice who who was, you know, um, she was pretty well off herself in and of her own right. And, and her parents were moderate, but, and, but there were about eight children in the family. And the parents felt she didn't need any money, so they didn't leave anything to her, but they never communicated that to her, and she was hurt. Totally. Yeah, totally. I made the suggestion, um, you know, that if that ever, you know, I thought what would be a good idea would be if, you know, because her siblings didn't look at it that way either, and they didn't realize that she was hurt. And and so I thought it might be nice for them to give her a gift from the parents, because the parents obviously loved her and cared about her. They were just kind of being practical and giving the money. And not that she needed the money, but she took it as a personal affront. And and oftentimes when, when we don't talk about what someone is getting, if they don't divide it evenly, it's it can be problematic. Well, and there's a, a big saying in my world, you know, fair does not mean equal or equal does not mean fair. And there can be situations, you know, where there might be a child with a handicap that's going to need, you know, housing for the rest of their life. So the other kids can understand that because it's, well, we see that our sibling needs the support. But in your friend's case, what I, you know, that's the kind of thing I would try and front load. Even if, you know, before her parents passed on, they told her this was happening still a lot easier to hear from the people who are making decisions than to hear it read through a piece of paper, you know, through a lawyer where you have no chance to negotiate or confront it. And I've worked with a lot of clients and families that when these conversations start happening, some of the kids will say, you know, mom and dad, I've done really well on my own. My sibling, Johnny, you know, or Lou have not done it. I'm okay if you leave more to them. And it's a choice. But having the conversations up front is is critical. And it is amazing how many people want to avoid avoid these conversations. I Absolutely. And, you know, when my grandmother passed away, uh, my grandmother's Irish right off the boat, um, she said to my father, I'm going to leave, I'm only leaving money to my granddaughters. Um, and she had a number of grandsons as well. And then she said, and I'm leaving half to the adopted granddaughter. And my father said, you can't do that because, you know, let's call her Sally, my cousin, um, was the best granddaughter to you. She was better than any of uh, my daughters have been to you. And she said, I don't care. You can all fight about it after you're dead and gone. And what's interesting is that my grandmother, who raised her children on her own um, and did quite well in raising them, private schools, homes, you know, um, 
they, she, my father then raised his daughters to be independent and to always rely on themselves, never rely on anybody else, in particular a man for money and make your own way in life was, was his message and that education is critical. So he didn't agree with this. So after my grandmother died and the will was read, the mother of Sally was devastated and heartbroken and then never spoke to my father again. And to this day, oh. doesn't speak to my father. And and he, she said, you can all fight about it after I'm dead and gone. And they did. <laughs> well, he didn't. Well, and, and it is astonishing when, you know, people who we think can have the most um, high integrity characters up front beforehand, you know, something that shows a lack of trust or a lack of faith or a lack of belief or whatever might be the case in how the will is read is really detrimental to future generations. And there's so many ways up front to deal with it to avoid that. It, and it is remarkable. We like to think that money doesn't change us, but when there's big uh, lots of money at stake, it is quite remarkable the assumptions people make. And the people who are the owners of the wealth, the assumptions they've made and what they've communicated, oh, everybody knows what's going to happen. But then when I talk to everybody, nobody has a clue or there's seven different stories. So it's quite remarkable um, how many assumptions there are in the system that can end up being really detrimental. There is best practice to be had, and it's hard to have the hard conversations, but it's a real test of leadership, I think. Because we don't talk about death either. That's another taboo subject. But what would be the three um, most important uh, ways to deal with dealing with the uh, the wealth that one has amassed and, and, and their legacy? What Are, are there kind of three basics? Well, I, or? I, actually, I have five five really simple steps. Okay. Five C's that I call them, and I'll just run through them super quickly. One is, and it's really easy, one is to commit to getting it dealt with before you get hit by a beer trucker before uh, people are left in the dark. So be responsible for your wealth, understand it, know what succession and stewardship and legacy you want to create for the next generation. Um, so commit. Um, have a contingency plan. If you're going to get hit by the beer truck tomorrow, what exactly would happen and who would know and where would you really be? And so that's a great place to start. If I were to be pulled off the earth tomorrow, what steps need to be in place to inform, communicate, prepare? What are, what are the competencies I need in my circle? Have I got the right lawyer? Have I got, you know, is it a business that I'm transitioning? Do I have the right team around me? So what competencies are missing in what I want to have happen to my wealth when it goes? Um, and then communicate. Communicate, communicate, communicate. You cannot, I cannot overstate that, you know, it's so much better to do while he's alive and of sound mind. Um, and then the last is just to um, complete. Make sure that you... Leave it in a place that your kids aren't left to fight about it when you die, costing the estate millions, costing people huge amounts of grief, loss, broken relationships. Uh, don't leave unquestioned assumptions. And if you're communicating to the right people in the circle, you know, it, it will be so much healthier. And the wealth that you've created ends up being so much more productive for, you know, either the families or the philanthropies and, and doesn't just go to CRA or to lawyers. And this, I imagine, takes some time. So you, you really want uh, to delay that getting hit by the beer truck. So it takes some time to oh go gosh. through this. When people ask me about this, I say, when should we start? And I say, yesterday. Yeah. You can never be prepared enough for this and talk about this enough because situations change, circumstances changed. I just finished a meeting with a family. You know, there's, you know, the daughter's now married, a, a divorced guy with two kids, and his wife is saying to the husband, you got to make sure that you get on the will in that estate because our kids are going to benefit. And 
you know, there's all kinds of things that we that we need to address now and address the assumptions. It, it, it's hard, but it's so much healthier and so much better for everybody to do it before. Well, fantastic. It's so great. Make your own way in life because you can become independent, but I'm also going to commit to this as well, Sharon, with the debt that I have. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the program. That's Sharon Duguid. She is a family enterprise advisor, and I'm Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It's always my pleasure, and we're going to be talking about pleasure in this segment, uh, to host this program. You know, I have so many women who present in my clinical practice with low sexual desire, low libido. They've closed up shop. They just don't feel like having sex. They And they're okay with it. They're not even bothered by this. But there are some people some women who are bothered by this. And certainly the partners of those women are bothered by the low sexual desire of their partner. And in fact, I had a couple in my clinical practice, literally like 25, 28 years, no sex or less than satisfying sex. And the wife who was, you know, just really disturbed by all of this, uh, in not in a way that she wanted to have sex. She just had every excuse in the book. Does that sound familiar, guys? Uh, to delay having sex with her partner. So that's one thing, and I see that quite a bit. That's not uncommon. But the thing that struck me was she said, you know, I have another therapist that I see, and she said it's fine if we don't have sex, that we don't have to have sex. And I said, well, you know, with all due respect to the other therapist, I beg to differ because your husband actually wants to have sex. It's okay to be in a relationship where you don't have sex if neither of you are bothered by it and neither of you want to have sex. The other thing I commonly hear is, and I'm hearing this a lot from 20, you know, women in their 20s and 30s lately, and you know, even I'm a little bit surprised by it, but I shouldn't be because according to the Preside study, about 44% of women between the ages of 24 and 44 have low sexual desire, and only 12% are bothered by it. So, But I'm seeing a little bit of a surge in women in their 20s and 30s. They've just gotten married, and they've never had sexual desire, but they love their partner, and they and they all say this. And, and even recently, I said it back to a woman. She said, um, you know, but my partner is so patient about it. He is really patient. And, and I had to say, they're not that patient you know, and, and that's the truth because women are under some some sort of a denial drug under the, they are under the spell of this denial drug that says, it's okay, I don't want to have sex with my husband and he's so patient about it until they find out that he's having an extramarital affair because they will seek it elsewhere. That's very common. Okay, not 100%, but most of them will. So the question I've been asked recently, which I'm really happy about hearing from these women who are in sexless relationships where their partners do want to have sex, and the question is, can sex, sexual desire, can sexual desire be cultivated? The answer to that is absolutely. In fact, it always has to be cultivated, whether you are in a sexual relationship or not. This is something you need to stay on top of everybody has a different sexual appetite. There's no single standard of sexual desire. And it differs not only from person to person, 
but in the same person over a person's lifespan and depending on who they are with. So they may have sexual desire with one person, but not sexual desire with somebody else. Many people marry somebody for uh, because they can take care of them, because they can balance a checkbook, because they're from the right family, because they they thought that, you know, this would be a better one than the guy with the tattoos that they were actually sexually attracted to. And and I often say to people, I you know, it's important that you are sexually attracted. Some people, some women will say, I didn't know how important sex was going to be in my marriage. I thought it was all about the other things and that, that I just wasn't going to have to have sex with this guy because I was never attracted to him in the first place. So this desire discrepancy, extremely common uh, in uh, couples, heterosexual couples and same-sex couples as well. There's a number of reasons for desire discrepancy, and men can have low sexual desire as well. They can be psychological, they can be interpersonal, they can be related to medication, they can be medical issues. Uh, it becomes a diagnosable condition only when it diminishes the quality of one's life and creates distress or that bother or disparity arises in the sex drives of partners, and, and that will you know, tend to evolve into a matter of unresolved contention in the relationship. People start fighting, and I hear this as well. So, you know, it's it's not um, you know it's it's not worth it really to be fighting about this when there's so many things that can be done. And you know, oftentimes I say to women, just do it, just do it. Take a page out of Nike's book and just do it. And if you enjoy it, and typically women do, and we call this responsive desire, then, you know, problems are on the way to being solved. They're not necessarily solved. Of course, you want to resolve all of your conflict in the relationship or the things that are really contributing to the disparity in your sexual desire. But the other thing is you got to take a look at yourself in the mirror, in the proverbial mirror. You know, do you feel good about yourself? How's your body image? Have you got a little bit of extra weight on you? Is your stomach a little bit big and you don't want your partner to touch that? Do you feel like you're um, unhealthy or absolutely exhausted? Do you feel happy with yourself? Do you feel like you have peace of mind? Are you comfortable with yourself? Do you dress in sweats or do you dress in a dress and pumps whenever you possibly can? How about all under? Do you feel good all under? Do you wear beautiful lingerie every day, whether or not you're going to be engaging in intimate acts during that time of the day? You know what? That actually is so beneficial and it exudes sexiness. It exudes sex appeal. And I had a a gentleman who emailed me um, about, he was in a sexless marriage, of course, but he said that his wife had worked at the beginning of their marriage for 10 years. His wife had worked at Victoria's Secret and she got big, deep discounts on some of the beautiful lingerie. And he said their sex life was never better. You got to feel it. You got to own it. You got to live it. You got to love it. And you've got to enjoy it. And you've got to know what feels good for you, ladies. Know So it's important that you touch yourself, that you self-explore, that you take time with yourself. You experiment with your partner. You communicate with your partner. You explore with your partner. Everybody has secret desires. Everybody has secret fantasies that they would love to act out. But sometimes we're embarrassed in front of the person that we are the closest with, perhaps the father of our children, perhaps uh, your husband. You know what? Sex can become boring for women, especially uh, for women who have been in a long-term relationship, and there's nothing worse than boring sex. But you've got to bring it back to you. Sex is for you, ladies. That's the most important thing. It'll make you feel good. It'll help you to manage your stress. 
It'll help you to sleep better. It'll help with your mood. It'll help with your approach to life, and it will definitely help in your relationship. I'm Maureen McGrath, and the answer is yes, sexual desire can be cultivated. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.